Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi, in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to another edition of History Hack. It's Lockie in the house. It's been a while, uh, actually. It's it's nice to be back. Thesis drama is over. Um, The lovely Chris uh, is with me as well. He's all, he's an eye all the time. Chris, how are you? <laughs> I'm I'm doing all right, mate. Self-inflicted late night studying. No alcohol, unfortunately, but uh, ready and rearing to go with this one. I recommend espresso, man. Um, oh, man, I've I've just downed a pint of Dr Pepper. That should do it. <laughs> but we have we've got uh, Jesse Alexander with us, who is historian and lecturer and freelance public historian who presents on the YouTube Great War and Real Time History channels, and he's going to be he's here today to talk to us about. Military history on YouTube, and we've dealt with a lot of military history on Twitter, so um, let's see how similar they are. Jesse, welcome to History Hack. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I've got to say, I've been looking forward to this for a while. Um, I'm a very long-term follower of Jesse on Twitter, and I've seen plenty of his videos uh, as well, Um, and I do very much enjoy his uh, feedback of the day feature that he he shares with us. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be good. Uh, Jesse, you're a a talented man, aren't you? You're a multilingual very practically kind of keen on the application and, and study of, of history and um, getting on YouTube and putting your face out there rather than simply um, recording yourself for, for, for general consumption. YouTube, it's, it's a huge amount of internet traffic goes through YouTube, isn't there? But there's got to be some, some pitfalls and problems. What, what got you into um, YouTubing history, first of all? Well, thank you for that uh, overly generous uh, introduction. I think I'm going to do my best to sort of at least blow part of that out of the water now by answering this question. <laughs> Look, basically, um, I had an office job, right? I had nothing to do with YouTube. I'd never really worked in front of a camera. I did. I had done public history work in the past back in Canada before I moved to Europe, where I've been living for more than um, a decade. I worked at museums, I worked at historic sites. I was a tour guide at the Canadian Vimy Ridge First World War Memorial in France. So I had an idea about you know trying to do history for the public, let's say, but I was working at an office job, very frustrated, nothing to do with history for years, and I just quit. No plan, no idea. A little bit of money in the bank, but you know there was a there was a doomsday clock ticking of when I was going to have to start eating you know only beans and toast. For a cultural reference for all your UK listeners, since we don't really eat beans and toast <laughs> in Canada, toast I thought I thought I'd throw you that bone. Um, and yeah, I I had consumed history on YouTube before, not super religiously, and I had seen this channel, The Great War, before. Thought it was a neat concept follow the war 100 years after the fact, week by week. Uh, There was an entertaining host, uh, an American actor. And all of a sudden, I see they put out a video. Hey, uh, we're looking for a new host because we're changing the concept of the channel and so on and so forth. So I thought to myself, I'm sitting there unemployed watching YouTube. This is not great for, you know, your future prospects (laughs) prospects here. So I just sent them a video basically saying, uh, hey, this is me. This is why I think maybe I can do this. And then it happened. Now, what that means is that I am not the, you know, technical brains of the operation by any stretch of the imagination. So there's a team of people who make uh, make this a visual product as well. And that's important, I think, to emphasize. It is. I, I kind of 
envy really with the, the sort of the possibilities of, of YouTube versus podcasting because podcasting you, you, you know you have to be quite descriptive I guess but you do have yeah I guess there's there's more you can do uh, on YouTube isn't there the first of all is that your lane would you say I mean you because you, you do other things too yeah I think I've I've morphed into quite a generalist. I have a very superficial knowledge of quite a lot of conflicts now, since we focus, you know, pretty much on on the history of war. But yes, my first love, I guess you could say, if I can use that term, was uh, the First World War. That's what I focused on uh, from my master's research, for example, is about propaganda, uh, depictions of Austria-Hungary in U.S. uh, editorial cartoons, that sort of thing, visual kind of propaganda. So yeah, that's why I was so excited to write to the guys who were founding a new startup production company to continue with the Great War Channel and say, hey, maybe we can work together because it's my it's my favorite historical uh, period and, and topic. But we since started a second YouTube channel called Real Time History and there we're not so branded, right? So we, we can just pick w- whatever topic we want and work with that. So we've done stuff on the Franco-Prussian War, quite a substantial series week by week. Um, We did quite a a three-hour treatment of Napoleon's campaign in Russia. We've done a bunch of World War II focused single episodes. We're getting into Vietnam now, starting with the French, which I think are a bit neglected in the English-speaking world generally, but in particular, the kind of uh, the Indochina War. So yeah, we've been all over the place. Uh, Anglo-Zulu War is in the in the production pipeline. It's going to be uh, coming up soon. So yeah, I think First World War was definitely my my preferred topic. But we've gone all over the place. As far as um, the medium is concerned, it's interesting because I I thought about you know what are the advantages and disadvantages of YouTube many times, and sometimes they're contradictory. One of the advantages, you're quite free right? We're a small startup company. The two owners can just say, hey, we want to do a six-hour documentary on the Franco-Prussian War. No one in their right mind would do this otherwise. (laughs) No, the BBC will never get funding for that, right? Like the German state media will never get funding for that. The French either, especially the French probably. But um, like we can do that as long as we can scrounge up the money. And that's tricky because production is expensive, especially if you want to be half decent, right? All these graphics, all these armies moving on maps, the copyright uh, licenses for all the archival images, which some are free, but many are not. If anybody's ever worked with the IWM, you have an idea what I'm talking about, et cetera, et cetera. So you do have, it does seem like a creative wild west in some ways, but there are kind of realistic Restrictions, especially when you're trying to earn your living um, legally as well, the copyright stuff, which can be, which can, which can get tricky. They also have some rules about which you can and can't show, like you can't show dead bodies, even in a historical photograph. So that's a pretty heavy restriction to work under when you're trying to show something historically valuable about conflict. But you can't show the result of conflict, which is you know, the physical effects on on people, on humans. So it's a mixture, I think. Uh, Sometimes we have great ideas for topics and we go and check, you know, the commercial image data banks that we have contracts with and we check whatever archives are free. And we're like, yeah, you know what? It would be so cool to do a 20-minute spot on this Chilean anarchist uprising in 1919 because no one's ever heard of it and it's probably really cool but we can't illustrate it unless we commission someone to, you know, do a bunch of custom illustrations. And we're never going to, you know, we're never going to earn that money back on, on that topic. It's not popular enough, right? If it were about Hitler's third ball or something, awesome. We get 2 million views. You can do whatever, but we don't want to do that, right? So... It's, it's always tricky. I mean, my, I guess my uh, sort of early, very early kind of historian career is not too dissimilar in the sense that, yeah, I, I jacked in a job that I disliked, and and then it's ah, how do you pay the bills? <laughs> kind of, and, and for me, sort of tall guy yeah. uh, became the thing, and then uh, you know, a bit more academic uh, later on. But it, it is true that sort of just initial challenge of 
I think I guess having principles sucks in a way, doesn't it? Because you, you want to do something that's valuable and um, and pushes the conversation along and does stuff that interests you, um, particularly, but also kind of being just popular enough to to squeak a living out of it is is the gig and the challenge. Yeah, you've got to walk a fine line sometimes because you know it's an attention economy, and we are competing against a lot of other content out there. Um, and we do have a bit of a more traditional format in a sense, like we don't just do, you know, cartoon illustrated history or whatever, just, I shouldn't say just, it's a genre of its own and that's fine. But we are kind of a mixture of digital content and, you know, we still use archival film footage and archival photographs and that sort of thing. So that means that you're, um, that you, just because we do that, just because we say we want to have a bit of a, a more in-depth take in some respect, I'm not saying we're the only ones, but that's kind of part of what we're going for is to be in that niche. You still have to grab people's attention. So you still have to have a catchy title, even if sometimes you're like, man, that is really on the limits, you know, of what I feel we can justifiably say or do or use to pique people's interest. You have to operate on those limits sometimes. And we hope anyway that we get the decision right more than we get the decision wrong. Sometimes uh, we get accused of, you know, clickbait or whatever, but rarely, rarely. And I, I feel pretty much okay, I think, with all the thumbnails and titles that we used. Although I had to make, I had to make one serious compromise uh, with myself which was the word forgotten about battles, about wars, about whatever. I hate it, but it works. And I feel like, you know, it's uh, it's not a cardinal sin and we'll have to live with it. So we have used that on occasion. All right. So you did the academic yeah. historian thing for a time and propaganda was your, was your, was your real niche. Is that something you try and bring into the the YouTube work still? Whether it's you know one, whether it's the focus on the First World War in particular, or in broader things, is it still something you try and work in? Yes, I, I will say that I never really went the full academic route. Like I didn't start publishing in journals, and I didn't, you know, I've worked as a, I guess I think the term in every every institution has a different term for this but lecturer or adjunct uh, whatever you want to call it so i've taught uh, undergrad before but um publish and publish or perish and all that wasn't really wasn't really something that i was that interested in i found writing long form academic texts extremely well just difficult frankly not necessarily um intellectually but in terms of i don't know i want to be doing stuff i want to like show stuff i want to put this into comprehensible terms. I want to show images with it. And that's one of the things that drew me to public history, but also drew me to that propaganda topic as well. And we do try to inject that when we can. Of course, it's not just me that decides every aspect of every episode, right? There are team discussions, there are limitations. The producer's like, well, can you add two lines about this? Because the awesome clip of, you know, whatever, happening or we can show this neat visual thing so it's kind of um it's a compromise between writing for the visuals and matching the visuals to the history um i think so that's a conversation that we have about every episode but yes i always try to mention or I always when i can i try to mention oh this battle was then used in propaganda afterwards and then maybe they show a poster or something like that and i'll translate the caption if it's one of the couple of languages that I know otherwise I'll get somebody that's one of the beauties is we can crowdsource certain things right if we say hey what is the exact translation of this you know I don't know Italian uh, phrase on the bottom of this uh, cool poster that we found I don't know uh, Professor Wilcox will for example chime in or whatever right so on Twitter so uh, that's that's kind of handy as well but yes I do try to inject the propaganda stuff to the extent that I can, not only because it's interesting to me, but because I feel like it adds to that depth and that context that we can give. So if we're if we're mostly giving a narrative of a battle, let's say, for example, in this episode, we need to like thicken that narrative. 
it's one thing to just say, well, here's what happened in the battle, but like, what did it mean? What was that experience of that battle like for soldiers on each side? So then we have some quotes from memoirs or diaries, which of course are not perfect sources, but you know, we, you know, we have to work with, uh, with what exists. And that's where I try to add in, you know, certain propaganda things or while well, this myth came out of this battle later and was used later in the Soviet Union to justify X, Y, Z, or who knows what. So we're trying to like thicken the narrative, if you will, because we usually adopt a narrative structure. Uh, it's something that's easily accessible. It's more efficient to produce. Sometimes we adopt an analytic structure where we ask a question and then we uh, we try to answer it. Like, what was the deadliest day of World War One? Can we know what do the sources say? La la la. That kind of um, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, what you're saying about the communities, I mean, I, social media is, is excellent for certain things, isn't it? You do get the odd kind of divisive issue, which then turns... The odd? Yeah, okay, I mean, putting it mildly, you know, <laughs> I, I, I got that food fight gif that I, uh, I put on every so often. We now go live to history, Twitter, and it's, and it's what did you say? How can you possibly say that? Um but then you you temper that with the the number of people who are prepared to sort of share expertise and uh, and and on the whole, it's a good thing, isn't it? Just I th- I think so. I mean, I've had a lot of negative, you know, comments and so on. I'm sure we'll get into that at some point because it's quite dramatic and 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 all that. But there's been a ton of positive stuff, and there's been a lot of people who've reached out to us saying, "Hey, you know, I was never interested in this." or I didn't know that, or I accepted my sort of patriotic high school version of this, and now I want to read more about it because you raised questions. Um, Or kids saying, you know, you really helped me get interested in history, now I want to study it at university, or this really helped me structure my thoughts about writing my own paper, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, it's it's pretty cool. Obviously, social media is a massive double-edged sword, not just for us, but it's like slicing civilization in half in a way as well. So it's a product of our times, but I try to ride with the good uh, as well as, you know, tolerating the bad. Yeah. I think with with social media, I mean, you you do get to bounce ideas off people as well, don't you? And I think with the kind of the the role that you've taken on, on YouTube kind of, you, you're able to address kind of more niche topics than you will find on TV. Um, so you, you possibly get to be a bit more interrogative than we would find on TV as well and get to myth bust too. I guess the First World War is, is I don't know, I can't think of a, a conflict that needs more myth busting uh, around it. How important do you see that in what you do? I think myth busting is important, but I also try to keep away from me being the, uh, let's say, how can I paraphrase this, the history justice warrior uh, yeah. on the internet, because, you know, I don't have a monopoly on, on myth busting or where the line is between a myth and a historical argument, because sometimes, you know, they're related to each other. It's not, it's not always uh, plucked out of, plucked out of thin air. We're drifting into propaganda world here, aren't we? A little bit. But... A little bit, yeah. And especially when we deal with topics with um, with the Russian Empire in the First World War, or even in World War Two. This is, you know, obviously the closer you are to current events, the more excitable people get, and the more political it gets. But I think, as far as um, myth busting is concerned, I think it. The way I would put it is yes, but the myth busting is not necessarily some kind of, you know, um, crusade in and of itself. I try to base it in, okay, what's the most up-to-date literature about this that is not, you know, obviously sort of partisan and how does that interact with the myths or with the kind of patriotic version of the story for whichever nation feels like it was martyred or was the hero or was both or whatever. Right. So, just to take the most common type of myth, which is the nation type of myth that we see people talking about. Um, there are a lot of other conspiracy theory type myths as well. Those are easier to kind of discount, I think. Um, but yeah, long story short, I think we do a bit of myth busting, but 
a bit softly, like we weave it into the narrative. We have this concept in-house of uh, the sandwich tactic, where basically you need to keep people's attention if you want them to watch the whole video. So you need to have action. So you've got to have some kind of development where you're describing or explaining action and battles and conflict and tension and decisions and failures and successes. But you want to inject this context. So you can't, you can, but you're probably not going to reach as many people, especially in our case when we're known for something else. Just have a full on, you know, lecture style analysis. You can do that, but it's not really what we do. So we sandwich in the more abstract or the myth busting or the analytical parts in between, let's say, two phases of a battle or two phases of a war or whatever. That kind of thing. And that's where we do some myth busting in a bit of a, sometimes in a bit of a subtle way, maybe. That is cool. I mean, I, yes, I, and I understand what you mean as well, because it's, it's not, it's not worlds away from guiding in that sort of sense either when you, when you're out on the ground trying to talk that's through, true. you know, a, a, a battle. I kind of, you got to do a little bit of the, the how do we get here, but also the so what, you know, so actually sort of bringing that, bringing that through it, it, it does sound and it does seem to me you, you you're almost i don't know like there's a halfway house between sort of serious academic history and sort of tv popular history is that as maybe fair in a positional sense i think so i mean i think there's been some good history done on television as well like long-form documentaries i don't know ken burns's civil war or this great PBS documentary called The Great War and the Shaping of the 20th Century from the late 90s, which is what really got me into documentaries, I think, uh, those two. There's been some great British ones about the two world wars as well, of course. So I think there's some good stuff on TV, but you'll note that most of my examples are from some years ago. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I think TV has morphed into something different, mostly now, as far as history is concerned. I think there's still some has popped into my head from you know Richard Holmes, and I'm, I'm... <sighs> there was the hunting not, Hitler yeah. document, so-called documentary. There, there's the History Channel, which the name now has nothing to do with what they what they broadcast and so on. So I think in the current context, yeah, I think it's probably fair to say we try to find a middle ground between, you know academic lectures and um what television history has largely become so i mean that's that's great as far as opportunities go on youtube isn't there you've got you've got the opportunity to be a lot more free you've got potential to i don't know with work with a more niche audience and a more a more niche content uh, but also put it out there for anyone who wants to see it and i think that's i think it's valuable um, personally, I think it's really, really useful. What What would you say are some of the big pitfalls then with YouTube history? Not necessarily yourself, but um, but but more broadly. I mean, I think one of the big struggles is for everyone, but we face this a lot because we do uh, because of our style that's a bit heavier in some ways. And because we pick some more niche uh, topics, is you need to reach that critical mass. It's not economical if you don't, and you can't earn a living if you don't reach a critical mass of viewership, um, and or if for some reason every single person who's interested in uh, military history would donate to us on Patreon every month in the world, well, that would be enough. But not every person is going to do that. And they're also not all going to watch the video. So you need to cast your net a little bit wider. So there's this constant kind of struggle of how do we make this appealing and keep that as sort of depth? I think that's the hardest thing. And the nature of the ecosystem in YouTube does want to push you a little bit more towards sensationalism, towards uh, clickbaiting, towards, you know, controversial titles and statements um towards putting hitler in the title because people are searching for hitler more and people often people are just fascinated by well-known personalities or personalities around whom there's conspiracy theories and that that kind of thing so there's some sort of dark force to to deal with 
but at the same time, you know, there are some benefits to not doing that because then you also develop a reputation for someone who doesn't do that. And that in itself attracts people, maybe not necessarily as many, but I think it attracts people in a more stable way. You have people coming back to you. Um, and you can also feel okay about what you've done at the end of the day. Like, you know, if you worked on hunting Hitler and you helped give millions of people the impression that, uh, he escaped to Argentina, like my cousins, who are not history people. And we met up for coffee a couple of years ago. And they're like, oh, hey, let's talk about history. Jesse is, you know, he's a history guy. And they're like, did you know, did you see this documentary? Like Hitler went to Argentina. And I was like, oh, my God. I'm not naming names, right? But like, wow. I don't want that feeling. I don't want to feel like I contributed to that. Um, because there's so much of that out there. And so I feel like, yeah, that's that's one of the. That's one of the aspects when we deal with those pitfalls. Yeah, I mean, I, some people out there will be aware of this. Our, our little WhatsApp group in the History Hack uh, community is called the Titanic Nazi Sex Tudors. Um, which <laughs> gives us, maybe gives it could you a be a idea. YouTube comment of the day right there. Just that. Just that. <laughs> but I don't know. It must must be tempting sometimes to... I don't know, because you're in competition, presumably. How many other history YouTubers, history and in inverted commas YouTubers uh, are out there who are, dare I say it, less scrupulous than yourselves? I mean, there are dozens and there are lots who are great. Uh, there are lots who really do a great job, regardless of their style. Like there are some who I think do a good job without going as in-depth and there are some who go more analytical more academic than we do and do an awesome job as well but of course you know there are lots of channels that are there for views and i think this is this is also the the double-edged sword of the democratizing aspect of the internet even though i think in general that's been debunked as a as a concept as a utopian concept but there are still elements of that in, I guess, uh, the way the internet works. And one of the good things is anybody can put out a YouTube history channel. One of the bad things is anybody can put out a YouTube history channel. So in some cases, I think there are people who run channels who don't, haven't yet developed the kind of critical thinking skills. So they'll get like a book and then make a video based on what they read. But putting that book into context, what parts of it are outdated, what historical school it represents, what other arguments there are maybe, or interpretations. That's something that uh, they might not be in a position to do yet. And that's reflected sometimes in, again, I'm not going to name any names, but I've seen, you know, multiple videos about, you know, who was the most butchery of the butchersome generals of World War One. Uh, they were all terrible butchers. Which one was the, yeah, the butcheriest, right? I mean, come on, dude. Like, what, what are you doing? This is not historical. I, I saw one of did the crack sink the Titanic. <laughs> did the what sink the Titanic? The, the cra a kraken. Oh, okay. ah, yes, naturally. <laughs> very, very cold Weird. one. <laughs> cold and stiff one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, bloody. I'm not going to mention the internet company, but you know who you are. Um, yeah, there's a lot of clickbait videos that just suck people in. And I do wonder how many people, like like with the hunting Hitler thing, come away and go, I saw a documentary on YouTube once, and they said a Kraken sank the Titanic. So it must have happened. And just, uh, it's, it bemuses well, almost, me. Almost as bad, people might see something on, on YouTube and they might not take it hook, line, and sinker, to keep with our maritime theme here with the Kraken, but uh, they might then say, oh, but then who knows? Maybe it was this, maybe it was that. And the who knows, we can't really know anything for sure school of popular perception of history is, is really widespread at the moment, right? Because, of course, facts are now truth and all this kind of stuff is kind of getting much softer um, in the digital world and its impact on us. And yeah, that is that is one of the impacts of crossing the line with history on YouTube or with any other topic. But I mean, we're, we're here to talk about history. 
is that you, even if this isn't your intention, the impact is often that false equivalences get created all over the place, right? And so people might say, and people do often comment on our videos, well, yeah, but this is just a bunch of garbage. Like the other guy said this, and there's no, there's no differentiation, right? The other guy might not have listed any sources. The other guy might not have been able to read the language in which three of the five most important books on the topic have been written or whatever, right? But there's an equivalence there for for. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Yeah, well, I think we're, we're, are we drifting dangerously close to the what is a historian uh, question? And and do you do you need academic qualifications and and things like that? And I think a lot of people say no, but I mean I'm a part of that discussion, right? Because for lack of a better descriptor, I'm often referred to as a historian, which is okay with me. But at the same time, I can understand how someone who's earned their PhD and you know does original research and publishes it at a university might not want me to have the same descriptor as they would have, right? Because they're doing a slightly different job than me. We have similar training up to a certain level, up to the graduate level, right? Masters. But then after that, they've done something different. Now, you can say whether what they've done is harder or easier or more valuable or less valuable. That's another topic, I think. But there is a difference. And it's the reason why I try when I can to describe myself as a public historian. That's kind of my, I feel like that's fair to say, right? Because I'm not trying to say that I'm God's gift to the academy. Absolutely not. I, I'm, I'm glad you used the word training because I think that's what it is, isn't it? It's like training for any kind of job at all, anywhere, whether it's, you know, kind of nursing or uh, teaching or, um, I don't know, just in some practical the labor kind of work someone who has trained for that i don't know might not even be better than than a very talented person who's just sort of taken to it possibly but chances are they're going to be pretty well placed to do it or at least have some kind of uh, advantage someone who's read 30 books on a subject is going to be better placed to answer questions on it than someone who's read three books uh, on a subject and that's where the sort of training kicks in it's not the be all and end all however uh it is it is something so i guess you're trading that line too as well aren't you you you, you do have a bit of an academic background or a postgrad degree it's not nothing but Absolutely. also but presentation matters as well doesn't it so it how does. many how many worthy but dull <laughs> historians do we do we see in here i'm afraid there's a grain of uh of truth to that uh stereotype which is okay because in a sense it's okay because the job of an academic historian is is has traditionally not been to communicate to the general public now i think that that creates a problem in society and with um with a democracy's public's engagement with history or understanding of history. So I hope that as many 
academic historians as possible, um, you know, place value on their teaching and place value on engaging with public history. And we've worked with some who have, for example, for our Franco-Prussian War series, we worked with a German professor and his teaching assistant who was uh, earning her master's at the time. And that was, I think, a very, we, we ended up with a great product out of that a product that had a certain amount of academic depth that would have taken me far, far longer to try to achieve by reading myself into the topic to the depth. I couldn't have read myself to the depth that this uh, partner professor of ours had read himself to. Of course, he's one of the leading experts on the topic in the world. But that kind of partnership is extremely useful. And even if even if we produce stuff on our own, <clears throat> me and, and Mark, the other researcher and writer in the team, you know, we both have master's degrees. And so I think we can both have a foot on either side and successfully bring across these concepts in a different way. It's not as rigorous. I'm absolutely not, you know, trying to say that one of our videos is as rigorous as a, as a published article, but um, it doesn't have to be because the subjective is not that. So we we try to bridge the gap, let's say, in some ways. The balance is interesting, isn't it? I do, I do. So you, you do have to walk that line uh, a little bit, and it is quite it's quite tricky to do. Just sort of cha changing tack a little bit, particularly with the First World War, but across history more broadly, languages do help. Do you ever find sort of the Anglophone world limiting uh, in in a way? Are you maybe you don't have that problem because you do you do have what French German Russian yeah um, I mean my Russian's not fluent but it's like it's pretty functional on a good day <laughs> let's say that of mine yeah the the language bubbles are in the humanities pretty influential pretty important like I I watch a lot of uh, French history content on YouTube there's some great uh, French history YouTubers and some that really go beyond and do topics that have absolutely nothing to do with the French historical experience whatsoever, which is cool. But um, yeah, it, it is limiting uh, to some extent. Now, English happens also to be the lingua franca of for you know a big chunk of the world. This, I guess, the single most successful lingua franca at the moment. Um, so we can reach an international audience and do. But some viewer expectations are shaped, I think, by the language that they live in, right? So some people get very upset if I pronounce German and French and Russian names in the way that they're pronounced in those languages rather than kind of anglicizing them a bit so they're more familiar to people. Other people think it's awesome and it's like a hallmark of the channel and they feel like it adds... Um, authenticity or authority or legitimacy, which I don't want to, that, that can be overblown, right? Just because I can read a French book doesn't mean I've used it responsibly or, or that it's a good book or whatever, but it does add something, I think, to our, to our content. Um, but yeah, I do. I mean, to answer your question very, uh, frankly, yes, I find working in the Anglosphere limiting. But if I were working in, let's say, the Franco sphere or the Germano sphere, I would also find that limiting to some extent. Um, I hope that we can achieve a blending sometimes, like a blurring of those spheres, because we can work with literature in more than one language. Um, and I always make a point when I can to sort of remind the viewers of yeah there were free french fighting here even though this is mostly a british campaign in north africa or whatever or there were more italians than germans on sicily and some of them fought you know like that this kind of and same for north africa as well right to stick to stick with that or um i don't know that the french bore the overwhelming majority of the brunt on the western front not only until 1916 but actually until the whole war, even though that proportion declined then significantly from the middle of 1916 onwards. So, and this upsets some people, 
just just one, those... isn't it? That is that yeah, is like... such a such a big one for people who haven't quite you know got out of their you know English or I don't know Canadian you know, bubbles. It's um it's tough for them to realise, especially because I mean a lot of people will go to the battlefields as well. A lot of people go to you know the Somme or Ypres and they'll see the scale of it and they'll they'll not fathom that the, the French could have at least that much and more across a much broader front um i think it i think it, it, there's a there's a do not com, does not compute element uh for for some people until the kind of you know, until it's brought to them so it's valuable work I, I i really do like it i mean of course then you know it's not like the anglosphere is the only sphere that does that i want to i want to emphasize that too it's just that's the language in which I was raised, that's the majority language of my home country. That's the language that we're working in on YouTube. So that's the limitations of that sphere are the ones that, you know, I deal with, I engage with the most. So that's why I guess I think about them more and I think more about how to poke at them sometimes a little bit. And not always, but once in a while. All right. Speaking of pokes then um let's talk about some of the comments that you get because this ah, absolutely yes. tickles me no end uh and they they range from the sublime to the ridiculous uh i do think what 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 have we had recently oh man they run the gamut like all over the place uh we've had i don't know how many tens if not hundreds of thousands of comments on the videos uh, over the years some of them are positive. Before we get to the fun ones, I was going to say <laughs> this is almost like TripAdvisor reviews of somewhere like Stonehenge <laughs> yeah. or something like that. And then you know, inevitably you'll have you know, kind of this is you know, really extraordinary, you know, interesting site, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then you'll have the oh, this is just a bunch of rocks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we have very, very cool ones where they say, oh, you know what? One of my family members was in this campaign, and I've never really seen much about it it's not a it's not a popular or famous one and now i really feel like i have a better insight into what that grandfather or great grand uncle or whatever experienced and that's really cool or like i mentioned earlier might cause some people to question something that they thought was a common knowledge or whatever some people say hey you know i'm kind of on this side of the discussion but i feel like you did a good job and you weren't you know you weren't quote unquote biased it's one of the favorite words of the the commenters of course right so there's a lot of positive stuff but let's forget all that because it's not as funny so <laughs> the the people who get angry or who are upset with the content um it can go in several directions right so one of my favorite directions that it goes in is that i'm a paid propagandist of yeah. the country that their country was fighting against in the war that we're talking about in the video right so obviously there's you know, my career priority is absolutely contacting the Romanian government and saying, give me money so that I can make you look good and Hungary look bad in the Romanian-Hungarian War of 1919. Like, clearly, why would <laughs> some guy from rural Quebec not be doing that? It's obviously the most the most appealing prospect and the most likely prospect for career success for me is to do that. So yeah, when and, and, and that these foreign that, governments would say, hey, yes, man from rural Quebec, <laughs> we're keen to send money your way. So you can this is our priority too. Random conflict that no one's heard of. <laughs> and we even, get, we even get on the same video people saying that I am, you know, a propagandist for the other side under the same video, right? Because they just see red when there's something that doesn't fit, you know, what they feel it should be. Uh, the Greco-Turkish war uh videos were great for that because i had people you know just losing their minds um there's a lot of comments about my appearance my accent um <laughs> uh, there are two schools one is that i look like john travolta and one is that i look like jake gyllenhaal i think both of those are extremely <laughs> wide of the mark otherwise i guess i have jake had a modeling career <laughs> i don't know um and sometimes they're even qualified to make sure that I don't, you know, get too big for my britches, like Walmart John Travolta or scuffed Jake Gyllenhaal. Those <laughs> oh, are two wow. of my all-time favorites. Yeah. Um, Accent-wise, I've gotten everything from Dutch to Hungarian to British. A lot of people think I'm British. Those people don't know anything about British English, I'm afraid. Yeah. But yeah. a lot of people do. 
a lot of people think I'm, you know, following the lamestream narratives about history and actually it was the Rothschilds who did everything and blah, and blah, and blah. Um, one of my favorite ones of all time was maybe two years ago. You're just a fact sheep. <laughs> it just encapsulates so what? much. It just en just encapsulates so much of what's going awesome about our society and information these days. Of course, people rehash a lot of this narrative about the West as a monolithic actor today and throughout history. Yeah. World War I episode about, or First World War, apologies, uh, episode, uh, let's say a recent one, relatively recent, about the collapse of the Russian army in 1917. How did it break down, right? Where, what were the phases of morale and casualties and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Like, yeah, yeah, the West has always been fighting Russia. I'm like, but just hang on. This war we're talking about, what is the West here? Because Germany and Austria, who you would now say are part of the West, were fighting against Britain and France and Italy, who you would say are part of the West. So, and indeed the United States, who I think probably count as part of the West. <laughs> so, yeah, um, it's hilarious, this, this West thing uh, that a lot of... I mean, look, there's a lot to criticize in so you know so-called western states histories and imperial histories and colonial histories and current histories but creating this monolithic this is one of the the, the most popular ideas now is this, this monolithic uh, thing right napoleon oh yeah he was just a westerner oh but wait <laughs> you know yeah. this makes no sense um it goes really deep sometimes into conspiracy theories. I mean, you, you have, unfortunately, your traditional anti-Semitic stuff all over the place, which I don't have to go into detail about that. I think a lot of people are familiar with how that um, works as a conspiracy. <laughs> but there are some really new ones to me, like the atomic bombs never existed and nuclear weapons don't exist. It's a conspiracy to like keep us all under control. And... Uh, this is I, might be my personal favorite. The Western Front in World War II never happened. Ah. So there was no Normandy landing. This is like American propaganda. Only the Soviets, you know, conquered everything from the Germans. And all the rest is just made up. You've you got to wonder what evidence you would need to to convince these people. I think that would be wasting your time because... If someone's going to believe that, they're not interested in evidence. You know, this is the evidence for us. It's an, a natural reaction. We're like, okay, you're making some argument. Well, what evidence do you have for it? That ain't how YouTube comments work. Okay. And that, unfortunately, is not how political uses of history work uh, either, as you probably know, right? If we're confronted with the, with the end user version of this trend in society, which has always been there, but now because of the internet, and I guess the way current politics have gone, it's sort of mushroomed out of control. Another favorite of mine, sorry, I'm just going to keep going until you stop me here, but the Canadians or the Australians, depending on where the commenter is from, single-handedly basically won World War I. Ah, oh, classic. I mean, the British were trying to keep us back. They were <laughs> incompetent butchers. And nonetheless, we freed ourselves of the shackles of their incompetent overlordship and whoop the Germans, uh, you know, with our combined nine divisions. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what's not to, what's what's wrong with that? Yeah. I mean, they were good. I'm glad they're on our side. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> My <laughs> great-grandfather was one of them. But, like, yeah. you know. Yeah, come on. But these things happen. People genuinely, um, people often genuinely believe these things. Another thing that people believe is that everybody who spoke the same language and in retrospect belonged to the same modern nation state had the same opinion about stuff. Yes. You know, These homogenous <laughs> blobs of people. Yeah, exactly. Like every last Polish speaking Roman Catholic peasant in Central Eastern Europe obviously immediately felt like a full fledged member of the Polish nation who automatically volunteered to fight in all the border wars that the Polish Republic fought in 1918, 1920, and 21. Look, sorry, man, but like ideas take a while to spread. When there are new countries, it takes a while for people to readjust their thinking and for this idea to kind of take more root. 
but that's a no-go for a lot of people, right? So, do you, do you deal much with the old history of written by the winners? Oh my god, um, dude! Yeah, all the freaking time. <laughs> and I'm like, I've read one or two German accounts, you know. Um, <laughs> oh, I read Guderian. What? Yeah. What? That man is obviously telling the gospel truth about everything, and there's no need to go beyond that. Yes, all the time. And what's what's ironic about that is very often the people kind of who firmly believe in that <laughs> they've adopted the loser's version, aka very often the post-war Nazi memoirs, Nazi stories to the American military about what the Soviets were like, and so on and so forth. So they themselves have adopted the loser's point of view, if you will, and they're like, "Oh, but the victors write the history." Well, how the heck did Guderian publish his book? Like, you know, it makes no sense. Yeah, or any of those guys, yeah. Or any of those guys. I'm just using him as an example. So it makes no sense, but it's a catchy little phrase. There's something to it in the sense that, of course, if you control the state after winning a conflict, you can amplify, you know, your interpretation of history. You can appoint a minister of education and change the school curriculum and so on. There is something to that, but... It's not like an axiomatic law of history that applies to everything far, far, far from it. But that's too much nuance for some uh, YouTube comment. But that's how it goes. Yeah, I think we're getting to the point where we need to wrap this up, I'm afraid. it's I, I really like chatting about this. I mean, doing kind of online stuff occasionally myself, not to, not to the same extent that you do. Also trying to tread that line between kind of storytelling to keep people engaged but doing enough valuable content content to 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 actually i don't know maybe maybe change a few minds when appropriate or inform correctly as much as you want to do i mean it's born out of love for history and 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 the 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 desire to share it and and i really really get that with you uh, and the work you do so so where can we where can we find your work uh, jesse well i think the main public uh, projects that I have are the two YouTube channels that I host and write and research for. That's The Great War. And the other channel is Real Time History. And that's where we try to engage with everybody out there about history because I think it's worthwhile and I really like doing it. And it is rewarding in spite of some of the, the fun funny comments we have. Uh, it's a very rewarding line of work to be in. So, yeah, if anybody out there is interested, go and have a look. And if you can, Support your local Ukrainian charity. Uh, and do follow uh, Jesse on, on Twitter, Jesse Alexander, uh, for more of these <laughs> comment of the days. They, they brighten my day, put it that way. Uh, Jesse, it's been a real yeah. pleasure having you on. Um, thanks, for, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result... We have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.